Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 167. We're taking a nuanced look at exercise in and around pregnancy, and we have the most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Lorraine Baraki. And Jordan. And, and Jordan, yeah. <laughs> See, this whole time, everyone was thinking that I you know, was just self, the self-proclaimed most handsome, but no. And also, it is, also, it I, just, is I. In <laughs> <laughs> that's right i uh, she's not in studio she she is uh which is unfortunate but we did uh corral her because she is uh, an obgyn and so i will let you introduce yourself give people a, a little overview of your background both professionally and athletically perfect thank you yes i'm coming to you live from the swamps of louisiana <laughs> here in uh, fort polk uh military base where i'm currently stationed and like Jordan said, I am an OBGYN, a board-certified OBGYN, and an active-duty Army officer, uh, and the chief of the OBGYN department here um, at this military base. And so that is my credentials. That's who I am medically and how it relates to this topic today. And um, on the athletic side, I am intermittently a powerlifter. I have always been active in some form or fashion, but in the past eight to nine years, I've been more dedicated to powerlifting and um, had competed in the USAPL Nationals uh, in 2018 and 2019. So that's my most recent kind of athletic exploits. Just to hype Lorraine up a little bit, uh, she squatted 358 is her best squat. Her best bench press is 231 pounds and her best deadlift is 413 pounds. I mean, that was at, uh, was that at the military nationals? Uh, I think you, you cited a combination of different lists. Of, of lists. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just looking back here. It looks like your best bench may have been raw nationals. That was the one in Illinois in Lombard. Mm-hmm. And then your best deadlift looks like that came in the Texas strength classic. Yes. Thankfully there's now a repository, a functioning repository of everyone's powerlifting results. So if you're ever curious on like what someone's lifted, just go to open powerlifting Prior to the the inception of this website, it was just I, I actually forgot the name of the old website where they would keep like a top twenty ranking, but no one would ever update it. Not all the meets were in there. And Power, it was, was that on Powerlifting Watch or Powerlifting Watch? That's what. Yeah. yeah. And you know what's funny? Up until last year, they every every year they billed me like twenty five dollars a year to have access, and I did that because I was in the top twenty all time. And I just wanted to see when I fell out of the top twenty. Wow. And I, then, I, then I was going to cancel my membership so I could no longer just go. Well, then, then you found out you're the only one they were charging. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was I was actually, yeah, I was actually <laughs> paying for the servers for the whole website, <laughs> which if you've ever been on that website, you could believe that the one. <laughs> yeah, that was like before. Yeah, before the Internet really took off, I think. Um, OK, so we're going to talk about exercise in and around pregnancy. Lorraine, here, my first question I didn't actually write here because I wanted to catch you, you know, off guard. Do you keep a track of do you keep track of how many babies you've delivered? Um, interesting you should ask me that because I've actually this past week just counted yeah. <laughs> the number yeah. that I had <laughs> just done. to see. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, because I'm gonna be I'm gonna be leaving this station here this summer and I was reflecting back and collecting a little bit of data. So uh, this facility is fairly low volume, uh, relatively speaking, but personally I have delivered 187 babies in the last two years. Oof. And um, before that, I completed my four-year residency, and that number was probably in the three to four hundreds. Yeah. 
So I just, I, I only, a few. Yes. I only had to do it once, like where it was required. Like everybody wanted an estimate just to see like what was the general experience. But during my intern year, when I was on OB at uh, LA County, they were like, you need to do, I believe, I think it was either 15 or 20, like, ab- like assisted deliveries. And then the, you were effectively s- signed off where the attending didn't have to be in the room, which okay whatever uh <laughs> they basically Ca- bird themselves you know yeah yeah you right just- <laughs> yeah that's been my experience yeah and then yeah that was like the first week and i was like oh man so anyway yeah your your delivery experience and then obviously uh ob experience is going to be very valuable here so just to give listeners a background here in 2020 is the latest year we have data on there were 3.7 million births in the United States. So that's a lot of pregnancies if you do that math. Um, and we know that sufficient physical activity, which is meeting the physical activity guidelines, which we've rehashed over and over and over again on this podcast, tends to be pretty low overall. If you ask people like, hey, how many of you are doing the aerobic guidelines? Roughly half of people will report meeting the physical activity guidelines. And if you combine resistance training, that number drops to somewhere between 10 and 20%. But then if you strap an activity monitor, you know, uh, uh, like a Fitbit to these folks, that number drops to less than 5%. So yeah, people's self-reported activity tends to be a little uh, uh, embellished. But in any case, when, Lorraine, when you're talking to people anywhere like before pregnancy, during pregnancy, after pregnancy, uh, like when is the typical time when you're establishing contact with these folks? Sure. So I I have the benefit of interacting with women throughout throughout their reproductive lifespans, um, mm-hmm. and that's going to include uh, preconception. So folks that are coming with infertility concerns or just wanting to establish care and talk about. Uh, what they should be doing in anticipation for pregnancy. Um, That is a really good window that I try to capitalize on when I'm seeing patients then to talk about just their uh, body weight, looking at healthy body weight goals, asking about their current activity levels, and um, just having that opportunity to plant the seed to establish some healthy habits before they become pregnant. And then when it comes to uh, engaging with women during the pregnancy, after they've established a viable pregnancy, I'm typically seeing them between 10 and 12 weeks for the first time in the clinic face-to-face. Before that, they will have had a uh, virtual uh, like telephone visit with a nurse in my clinic, and there is um, some scripted kind of education that occurs during that information gathering visit. Uh, but it's really at that 10 to 12 week when I have that opportunity to do a little bit more impactful counseling with that individual. Yeah. Um, my, mm-hmm. my, my interpretation or my, my guess is that in military medicine, you don't run into many like people that just show up to the hospital in labor who have not had any prenatal like visits, um, which during my experience, <laughs> or my intern year was significant. You know, people would show up and they're, you know, in labor and they like, oh, what was your prenatal, you know, history? And like, I've never well, seen a doctor. My last yeah. period was 38 weeks ago, if that helps. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Here I am. <laughs> right, right. So, so you just don't have this sort of established contact. I imagine in, the, in military medicine, it tends to be like, uh, you know, more regular since they, the access is higher. Right. That is much less common 
it the the number is not zero and sure, i yeah. have fairly recent experience with that but uh-huh. um but it is much less than in communities where um there are healthcare disparities or just you know women that um you know have different barriers to care so my my population of patients were very fortunate to have ready access to um excellent medical care yeah uh, so when you're at establishing contact, when you establish contact and you're asking them about their physical activity, what's been your, I mean, what's your gestalt about, you know, how many of these folks are meeting the current guidelines or even exercising at all? Uh, I, I would say that it mirrors, um, some of the statistics that you cited with how, sure. how, um, adults are doing in general in the U S. Um, and Unfortunately, I think that's that's the case even with some of my active duty uh, pregnant patients. There is a pregnancy physical training program in the Army that exists, um, but unfortunately, it's one of those things that um, is more meant to uh, seek accountability for folks to show up and sign in, uh, but the actual... Um, I would say that the actual meat of what that program, that training program is accomplishing is not really holding a very high standard, unfortunately. So I have a lot of, even though it's a mix of active duty and dependent um, non-military women that I see, by and large, it's it's a pretty low percentage that would say that they are meeting the um, activity, physical activity guidelines. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I would, I would have guessed that more of these women would have that's a cat, by the way, if anyone's wondering, like, <laughs> uh, Mr. Pib, Mr. Pib is, is, is in studio. No, um, I, I would have guessed just given the age, like selection bias here of your patient, not only just the, you know, the women in reproductive years, but also in the military that there would have been, you know, even greater participation rates or folks meeting the current guidelines. But so it's interesting that it's about the same, um, but maybe I shouldn't be so surprised. I just constantly, whenever I read these papers on physical activity participation, I'm like, dang it. I'm optimistic going in and then, sure. and yeah, my, my, my face and my mood just crashes as I we get have to, to do better. Know. Yeah. That's we right. We can do better. Room for improvement. Yeah. That's yes. Opportunities for improvement. Um, when you, I look at the data on why women are not meeting the current guidelines uh, in the peripartum, so around pregnancy period, mm-hmm. you know, some of the uh, rationale that's been discussed has been the lack of incentives. So women aren't necessarily aware of, of the benefits uh, versus risks, um, the, their mood during the peripartum period, uh, lack of encouragement, discomfort, so physically when participating in exercise, and then lack of counseling. We'll get to that later. Uh, I kind of want to talk about the current guidelines, which have evolved over time. Um, first guidelines came out 36 years ago, and my math was quick on that because it was 1985, the year I was born. Um, <laughs> the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, which is you know effectively the resource for guidelines, consensus statements, et cetera, particularly in the United States, came out with the first guidelines. They say, well, women can exercise if they were engaged in physical activity prior to pregnancy, but let's limit it. Let's limit this to 140, a heart rate of 140 beats per minute. Why? No one knows. It was just made up. And sounds uh, good. Sounds good. Yeah. yeah. I guess, you know, in that room, wherever this was decided, they were like, yeah, 140 beats per minute. Sounds right. They weren't emailing each other because email wasn't a thing. So I imagine this either happened like in at a meeting, like an ACOG meeting or something, or it was by mail, you know, in these long letters and 
whatever. Mm-hmm. So that <laughs> that was the first guideline, and that lasted for almost ten years. Mm-hmm. In '94, they updated the recommendation. Said, well, it's not necessary to record heart rate. Use subjective feedback like RPE and subjective symptoms. So what people were experiencing. Yeah, which is okay, better. Uh, and then in 2002, there was this influx of additional recommendations from international organizations that were mostly recommending 30 minutes of physical activity most days, tended to be moderate intensity aerobic activity, and some resistance training of medium intensity. The latest guidelines from the, from ACOG, again, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, is committee opinion number 804. And right. I love that they number these. It's like, Wow. Who started this and when did you decide, yeah, we're going to keep going with this? You know, 20 years from now, it's going to be committee opinion 1112. We got a good thing going with uh, now that's what I call pregnancy. <laughs> Volume <laughs> right. 3000. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if na- <laughs> if that's what we call music is still a thing. There got to be on like number 70 something. Kids, kids bop. Yeah. So you started medical school a year before I did and have obviously been involved in the trenches uh, since I uh, left residency. Um, have you seen the recommendations change during this period? So, I mean, you started in what, 2011 or so is when you went into medical school? Started medical school. Yeah. 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 And so it's been 10 years. Have you seen the recommendations change? Uh, marginally, um, (laughs) with the most recent update, having been to that committee opinion 804 having been in april of 2020 Mm -hmm. um and what what i notice is that there is an attempt to try to expand the recommendations trying to get further away from restrictive or avoidant language Mm -hmm. which i really appreciate and um and i'm definitely on board with and um so that's the main change. They're they're kind of coming into line a bit too with the um, 2018 um, guidelines that came out. Just the um, the, the U.S. Department of Health, guidelines. yeah, the physical activity guidelines. So they they dropped a line too about pregnancy, and they they were saying that you could continue. They're just trying to encourage it more um, as the kind of researchers and the folks that are out there trying to collect data are doing what they can to capture some kind of objective basis for this, which um, in obstetrics is rather difficult, as you can imagine. So um, the the quality of data, the the extent of the data tends to be rather limited, especially when you go anywhere beyond uncomplicated normal pregnancy. So um, that's the only thing really, uh, is just trying to increase that conversation more yeah. and more. Yeah. If you're at all involved in reading all of these international guidelines, national and international guidelines, you'll continually see the language, like as long as the pregnancy is healthy, uncomplicated, you know, right. there are, you know, few restrictions, right. Uh, although then later on within the same text, they provide a series of, Restrictions that are, if not explicitly stated, but insinuated like, Mm -hmm. oh, well, high intensity stuff we're just not sure about or lifting heavy. We don't we're not sure about. So we'll get into all of that. But uh, ACOG actually says, yeah, in the absence of maternal or fetal contraindications, exercise prescription and pregnancy includes the same principles and elements used for the general non-pregnant population. So it's like, all right, well, we would that just means in, in, in general terms, 
we wouldn't do anything differently right. for an individual who was pregnant or looking to become pregnant or just gave, yeah. had given birth outside of special circumstances, which is exactly how we would do with somebody with a particular medical condition or sure. other restriction. Um, so that just means meet or exceed the current physical activity guidelines with mm -hmm. user preferred exercises and exercise modes in a progressively loaded fashion. And we could really just end the podcast there and I would feel very comfortable. Do it. <laughs> do, do it. Yeah. Yeah. Do it. Um, but you know, this is the Marvel Medicine Podcast, so we're going to go into the weeds a little bit. So first up, we'll talk about exercise type. And in general, when you look at the physical activity guidelines, those they include recommendations for resistance training and aerobic training, mm -hmm. uh, which is actually a misnomer. I wouldn't have called it aerobic training because it's not just aerobic conditioning exercise. It also right. includes anaerobic, you know, like high intensity interval stuff. So we should just call it conditioning, but uh, no one's asking me that. The stuff they, that makes you breathe harder. Right. Yeah. For, for a you know, relatively yeah, long period of time. Oh, <laughs> they should have asked to, me to name it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I'm available for consult work guys. Just hit me up. Yeah. So we'll start with resistance training. Uh, the recommendations are the same as the physical activity guidelines, at least twice weekly resistance training, um, where you hit all the major muscle groups through a relatively large range of motion, but there are some odd restrictions here. And I say odd because when you look at the evidence base for these restrictions, you're like, uh, what? <laughs> so for example, the recommendations on resistance training advise to avoid isometric exercises. Those are exercises where the muscles stay the same length but are producing force. So um, an example of this would be like a wall sit. That's an isometric, isometric exercise. Or if you happen to have access to like a hand grip strength test, avoid doing that. Uh, also avoid heavy weights and avoid numerous reps. And I that's a verbatim quote. And I'm like, so just do heavy singles or moderate singles? <laughs> like one at six. Uh, and some of the, the guidelines will say, well, there's this plausible risk of fetal D cells. Like, okay, Lorraine, what is that? And like, are you, what do you think about those recommendations to avoid isometric exercises, heavy weights and numerous reps? Sure. So for starters, um, it's important just to point out kind of the difference between our normal adult heart rates um, and the heart rate of a fetus as, as it develops. Um, the normal range for a fetal heart rate is between 110 and 160 beats per minute. So quite a bit faster um, mm. than ours. And beat to beat, I guess you could say second to second, moment to moment, there is variability between um, the exact rate. Um, as opposed to ours, which tends to be pretty steady um, when we're at rest and uh, we'll have fluctuations with activity. But a baby's um, electrical activity that's stimulating the heart to beat, it's developing um, and it is going to vary uh, moment to moment, like I mentioned. And with those variations, there are going to be some increases that are sustained for a few seconds. Sometimes there are some decreases. And, um, and then it will trend back to its baseline. Um, so a D cell, like what you mentioned, is one of those decreases, um, decrease in the heart rate. It can happen for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's just kind of bumping into its umbilical cord and that brief moment will cause it to spike down and then it'll bounce right back up to its baseline. Um, and other times for a variety of reasons, um, there can be more prolonged or sustained D cells. And usually that's going to be scenarios where the, the baby's in distress. And um, that's something that you can see during labor, which is a stressful time when the kid's getting evicted from the uterus. 
<laughs> day to day, however, um, it it has not been found to be feasible to just have a woman hooked up to a fetal monitor round the clock to see what's going on in there at all times with all activities. So, um, so we don't have that data or that information to say when you use the bathroom and go to sit down and you bear down, have Valsalva movement, <laughs> you're cutting off the blood supply to your baby and they're having a D cell and that's harmful. Um, the fact that most pregnancies that are uncomplicated do okay and babies come out screaming and crying, pink and angry at the world tells us that you go about your day-to-day -day business and the baby's probably fine. So, yep. um, so what this is looking at then, it's taking a, a tighter look at specific movements, specific activities and saying, if you hold your breath and bear down, or if you are doing a wall sit or do some extended rep range of lifts, you're, you're probably causing that heart rate to go down and that could be harmful to the baby. Yep. That is conjecture. That is not something that's substantiated in good evidence. And the fact that we go about our business every day tells me that that's probably not the case. Yeah, I, I, it seems like the avoidance of isometric exercises, heavy weight, or like these protracted sets with multiple reps ultimately cause the person to engage in a Valsalva maneuver in order to produce more force or more efficient movement patterns. And that this may some way compromise blood supply, oxygen supply, nutrient supply to the baby for a prolonged period of time and thus cause untoward outcomes. And so there are, there's limited data looking at this directly, but that doesn't mean there's no data. Uh, so two recent studies came out 2021, one by uh, Dr. Gould, I believe, I believe Sarah's a doctor. Well, anyway, Gould et out. They're out of Alabama. So they had 22 women do a one rep max chest press. Interesting part of the study design is they were like, look, you can only lift 50 pounds in this modified chest press. Um, and if you can lift more than that, well, we're not going to go above that. So only four individuals out of the 22 could actually lift more than 50 pounds in whatever this modified chest press was. So you had 18 women doing a no joke, one RM on this chest press. And they were monitoring blood flow to the fetus via Doppler, which is mm -hmm. ultrasound, which uses sonic, uh, you know, ultrasound, uh, so just sound waves to actually view blood flow. And there was no decrease in the blood flow to the fetus. Actually, there was an increase, which was pretty cool. Uh, another study also done in 2021 used 15 pregnant women compared to 15 non-pregnant women doing a leg press. They basically established their 10 rep max on a leg press, and then they had them do various efforts at 20%, 40%, 60% of a 10 RM, either free breathing or with the Valsalva maneuver. And there were no differences in blood flow to the fetus uh, during the with or without the Valsalva. There was no difference in cardiac response to exercise between pregnant and non-pregnant women, meaning they responded the same way. Although at rest, yes, the pregnant women had a higher cardiac output, slightly higher heart rate and stroke volume. Those are all like well-established changes in pregnancy. Uh, basically, this means that the, in my interpretation, that pregnant women are able to respond similarly to exercise as non-pregnant women and that this blood flow concern to the fetus is probably overstated or if charitably, as you said, conjecture. I, I don't I don't know that you could say no risk. It's just that we have not established the risk. It's mm -hmm. maybe there, but we don't, we don't really know. And like you said, uh, the fact that most, again, uncomplicated pregnancies do just fine, despite <laughs> what people do in their day-to-day -day lives, is, is evidence of 
that, you know, you're likely to be fine. The baby's likely to be fine. And this is kind of one of those cases where I think an, an absence of evidence actually is evidence of absence. The people that participate in vigorous uh, intensity ac physical activity, whether that be high intensity interval training, CrossFit, straight up resistance training or whatever, and don't have, we don't see these spikes or, you know, in the data or case reports of like sure. woman was doing a heavy squat, you know, in her third trimester and right. had some bad outcome kind of suggest, well, maybe this really isn't a problem, particularly compared to the risk of insufficient activity. So right. I'm not sure that I would feel strongly about avoiding isometric exercises, which right. every exercise almost has an isometric phase or using heavy weight. Heavy is relative to the individual, right? right? The artificial 50 pound recommendation is completely made up. Uh, yes. And then numerous reps, again, without definition, I don't really know what they're saying, but it's like, so just singles or double. Right. Like, Because once, once you get to two reps, that's, that's when the bad numerous. stuff happens. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> that's what Hard that's, to count. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe hard to count. So, Lorraine, when you're talking to people or talking to patients uh, in the peripartum or around pregnancy period about resistance training, how do you how do you bring this up? Do you just say, "Hey, yeah. you should lift some weights," or like, what's that conversation go like? So, to to lay the groundwork, I let them know that there is not a strict rule book about this. That in general, I list off several benefits. Um, we talk about um, the decreased risk for excessive weight gain in pregnancy, the decreased risk of growing a baby that is excessively large, um, lowering your risk for diabetes in the pregnancy, as well as blood pressure problems in the pregnancy. Um, so kind of set the stage with some of those benefits and then explain that there, there is not a rule book, there, there, is not a, um, there are not set guidelines that are applicable to everyone. It doesn't make sense to make a blanket statement to say that if you are pregnant, you may not lift X amount of weight and you may not enter this level of intensity in your physical activity because every individual is coming into the pregnancy with different physical capabilities. That includes their pre-pregnancy activity levels and whatever their, their strength levels are and whatever their, like I mentioned, their capabilities are um, from when cardiorespiratory uh, cardio standpoint as well. So um, that's kind of how I, I lean into that discussion. And that leads to individualizing it, talking to the individual about what they're used to doing, what they enjoy doing, um, what they're interested in, or negotiating some of the fears that they may have based on things they've heard before. So that's, that's my usual approach to tackling this discussion in our first visit. Do you think that your colleagues just in general, other OBGYNs are doing, have any similar conversation or do you think that you're unique in having that type of conversation? So I have my local colleagues, people that I have the opportunity to interface with and have these discussions with. And I will tell you that the, the individuals in my practice, we are like-minded and we do have a pretty united front in that conversation with our patients. Um, However, colleagues at large, I do not believe that this discussion is occurring in this way. And, you know, things that make me believe this is I have patients transfer their care to me all the time in the military. Um, they will have initiated their care elsewhere, maybe with a civilian provider, um, non-military uh, obstetric provider or from a different state or what have you. 
and a lot of uh, mixed information is encountered during that initial visit to say, well, I was told that I shouldn't do X, Y, and Z. And so it's just an opportunity to, to hear what, uh, what their takeaways are from other providers elsewhere. So maybe, maybe some differences between what's going on at large versus what's happening, happening in your clinic. Um, yeah, it's probably, probably similar things with uh, aerobic exercise, or again, as I like to use the umbrella term conditioning, because it's not just aerobic stuff. But the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology says that aerobic exercise is safe during pregnancy, except the pregnant women must avoid sports that require physical contact between players and mi- to minimize the risk of falls and blows to the abdomen. So right. <laughs> maybe avoid the maybe avoid rugby, yeah. you know, field hockey stuff like that. that. So that that's how I that's how I kind of <laughs> that's how I end my spiel is uh, you can do basically anything that you feel comfortable doing. I'm not going to put specific restrictions on you, but some common sense things include avoid activities or movements that are going to increase your risk of falls. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's don't fall. It. Yeah, don't don't, don't repeatedly hit. slam your body down on your abdomen. Don't. Don't do that, but otherwise (laughs) go for it. No burpees, no burpees for, well, which still happens. You know, I, I, women, you you see the videos on, on social media, women in well into their third trimester doing burpees, up downs or whatever. And I'm like, well, the only thing I don't really like about that is maybe the compression. I don't know why I don't like it other than I'm like, maybe, you know, (laughs) From a trauma standpoint, sure. That's yeah, I'll tell you. I'll tell you the reason I don't like it is is based on just the the sheer the sheer force that can happen. You know, when you <laughs> when you when you have impact directly on the abdomen, um, the consideration or the concern in my mind is related to the placenta and that sheer force potentially um, affecting the placental attachment inside the uterus. Um, so. There, there are not massive reports of women doing burpees in CrossFit having placental abruptions left and right. No, that's not it at all. But it's just from like a common sense standpoint of, do you have to do a burpee? Do you have right, to slam yeah, your body yeah. down? Right, risk-benefit thing. <laughs> sure. I, suppose this is where, I suppose this is where the anti-trampoline narrative comes from. Like, hey, don't jump on a trampoline because of the <laughs> the sheer force potential of, yeah. you know, I guess. Um with respect to aerobic training, there are, again, if you read uh, the national and international guidelines, uh, many of them will have a particular heart rate that they want folks to like stay within. Or they, sometimes they use a term called heart rate reserve, which is calculated by your max heart rate uh, and some percentage of that. So ACOG recommends 60 to se- staying within the 60 to 70% of heart rate reserve or 50 to 60% of your VO2 max. Now, most people aren't going to know their heart rate reserve or their VO2 max. And so ACOG's like, yeah, well, we also don't recommend heart rate recording. So it's like, well, what, where are these numbers coming from and why even what put it in What do I there? do? Yeah, what do I do with this? So they, they actually recommend using RPE. Yep. Um, so RPE was originated uh, in the By Jordan late Feinbaum 50- in uh, 2010. <laughs> 2010. <laughs> Sorry, is that not right? Yeah, wait, is that not right? Uh, yeah, the Borg-Warner scale, you know, is uh, from the ni- late 1950s. Uh, originally was six to 20. Uh, that was the scale. And those values uh, basically correlated reasonably well to actual measured heart rates during physical activity. Basically, you multiply the RPE rating by 10 and that put people in, within shooting distance of their actual heart rate. So if you rated an activity at RPE 8, multiply by 10, your heart rate's probably 80. If you rated it at 12, multiply by 10, 120 beats per minute. Um, in any case, 
they recommend ACOG and a, and a number of other uh, uh, national international guideline uh, guidelines recommend using RPE and or the talk test. Basically, can you talk in complete sentences? What's your breathlessness like? Things of that nature. We use that in many of our templates when doling out uh, conditioning guidelines. Like, can you sing? Can you, uh, you know, can you can not you, sing but, but still I mean, talk? should you, should you, should say, you yeah, sing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's your training? Um, interestingly, though, like there are uh, studies on pregnant women where they're at much higher percentages of their heart rate reserve, so much higher heart rate. So 81% of a heart rate reserve, which if your, you know, max heart rate was 200, that means that people are, you know, heart rate of 160, which is fairly high intensity and there were no complications for mom or baby um, and no differences in umbilical artery flow, fetal heart rates, the biophysical profiles before or after strenuous exercise of the baby, which is like this constellation of different findings and they give you the the, the baby a score. The baby uh, well-being test. Yeah, exactly. I and so, yeah. so I'm just, again, where are these heart rate zones coming from and like why do them? Even the Canadian guidelines, they have a particular heart rate zone for age, BMI, previous activity level. Uh, but these are just made up. There, There's no evidence base for these. Uh, I won't say that they're trash because that would be aggressive and mean. And I don't want to be like that on the park podcast. Uh, so I, the way I view these, these are good places to start. Mm-hmm. And again, all of these resources are linked in the description. So you can check them out. These are good places to start. Uh, but they shouldn't be taken as gospel. So for example, if you're age 20 to 29 and you're previously active and you have a BMI of uh, less than 25, um, you can have a heart rate up to 155. And I don't want some individual who becomes pregnant who looks down at their Apple watch and says heart rate of 160. And they're like, oh no, the baby is choking. It's over. It's like, yeah, it's like, well, the yeah. baby may be choking, but it's probably unrelated to your exercise and <laughs> that, that difference in five beats per minute. Um, so when you're talking to patients about the aerobic aspect, I assume, you know, you've laid the groundwork because there's yeah. no rule book here. Yeah. Um, and that conversation goes to resistance training with aerobic training. How are you communicating the intensity? Yeah. Like, are you telling people it should be, you should, they should use RPE or they should, it should be this level of hardness. Like, how do you, how do you do that? Yeah. So the way that I explain it typically is by reminding them that outside of pregnancy, the way that their body lets them know that they are reaching a threshold of their capability in that moment mm-hmm. includes a variety of things, muscle fatigue, muscle soreness, um, breathlessness. And those same feedback mechanisms occur during pregnancy and they can continue to rely on those signals to indicate to them where their threshold is. And they may find that that threshold changes in pregnancy, typically either being at what they were able to do before, or maybe a little bit less for a variety of reasons. Physiologic changes, changes in your center of gravity, um, other symptoms you may be experiencing that affect your ability or your tolerance for a certain activity level. But they're still able to rely on essentially that RPE to let them know what can I handle now. And so it's really a conversation to try to empower the woman to try to um, uh, establish that autonomy and that confidence in themselves to say, oh, I, I know when I've reached a certain limit and this is okay and there's a reason I should be doing this and when I need to stop, I'm going to stop. So the age old, listen to your body mantra. Oh boy. Oh yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, auscultate it. Yeah, no, I, I, I like that, particularly if you don't have the opportunity to discuss RPE or the talk sure. test and stuff like that. Although I do right. think those, I mean, I know those materials exist on, like, on handouts. So yeah, yeah, those can be useful. Do you, does this change if, like, if somebody comes in and they were super, super active prior to becoming pregnant, does that change the conversation at all? Typically, no. Okay. Typically, no. Interesting. Yeah. Somebody's like, yo, I've been, I've been competitive at yeah. a competitive endurance athlete. Like, uh, I suppose at that point you're, it's almost up to them if they're like, I still want to do my training for, sure. you know, and you're like, right. And I think that that scenario, it is so, so uncommon and to, yeah, to, right. to consider that top one to 2% in terms of, um, uh, performers out there. Mm -hmm. Um, so what, and in rare cases that I have encountered pregnant patients that, that are very physical, very physically active, um, I find that the physiologic changes of pregnancy are going to have an impact on their performance. Um, mm -hmm. And, it, you know, it's not necessarily a function of them changing their, their exercise plan, but they, they show up every day and realize, oh, I, I actually, I, I'm not able to hit that same one rep max. Sure. And, and yeah, that's, and happens. that's, yeah, it's good. Like, um, expectation management too. Mm -hmm. Um, but that being said, um, that person going into that pregnancy it, again is going in with a different context, different capabilities. And like you said, there are not well-established thresholds or guidelines that, that will then translate into a specific plan that says, all right, we got to put some chains on your heart. No going above this rate. We got to oh, put right, yeah. some dampers on those muscles, you know? So, so yeah, my yeah. answer is still no. The same. Yeah. There's actually like a, a international Olympic committee consensus on like mm -hmm. elite athletes and kind of what they should be doing. And they very much reiterate this point that uh, a lot of it is going to be self-limited based on how you feel. Use RPE, yep. which is a, fancy way of saying use subjective feedback from what you're experiencing to like limit your yep. intensity uh but as far as like overdoing it in pregnancy this is such like a low a low risk that that would have to right. be evaluated on like a case-by-case -case basis right yep all right so now for the good stuff the benefits of exercise and pregnancy and, and i think you you've you kind of discussed some of the benefits uh to mom so again you're preserving physical conditioning if they come in you know, strong and in shape, or you're increasing it. Uh, there's a modest decrease in weight gain during pregnancy, particularly in individuals mm -hmm. who, uh, with obesity prior to pregnancy, yeah. reduces the duration of labor, postpartum recovery time, reduced risk of developing diabetes or high blood pressure during pregnancy. Preeclampsia risk goes down. There are mood benefits, reduced risk mood, of depression, yeah. lower incidence of having to have a cesarean delivery. Um, there's some evidence that urinary incontinence, uh, there's a reduced risk there, uh, both during pregnancy and afterwards, yeah. if you engage and meet the current physical activity guidelines or exceed them. One thing that probably gets a lot of hype, uh, because it is so common is diastasis recti. Uh, so just the separation of the two rectus muscles, um, that occurs during pregnancy as the, you know, uterus grows and grows and grows. Um, doesn't seem to have a reduced risk based on anything that you can do prior to exercise or prior to pregnancy during pregnancy or afterwards. People are like, Oh, it's, if I exercise more, it's going to be better. It's it's every individual's protoplasm. Some people yep. are just going to have it. And yep. there's not it, that one weird trick that's either going to cause it 
or that one weird trick that is going to absolutely prevent it. Yeah, or even treat it. It's just one of those right. things. And you know, most of the time it goes away. Sometimes it doesn't. You could do all the fancy special types of exercises that you want. Mm -hmm. And the reality of the situation is, is just not much that we can do for it. Some people are going to, it's going to, they're going to have it. And as far as managing the symptoms, sure, there are different things that we can do. But yeah, when we look at actual data sets, which are admittedly limited on mm -hmm. elite athletes, uh, which do have, they tend to train their abdominal muscles more and they tend to be stronger they have the same incidence of diastasis recti as sedentary individuals or insufficiently active individuals and so you're like well i thought being active cured everything it's like uh, maybe not this one thing yeah. yeah but there are also benefits for baby and i mm -hmm. think this is another like lever to pull from like a motivational interviewing standpoint um so basically when individuals accumulate less body fat there's better oxygen transfer to the fetus uh, reduced risk of heart conditions in the fetus, mm -hmm. uh, fetal brain development seems to be a little bit better. And some of that apparently is, a, is due to like activity related vibration, uh, which I think is awesome. <laughs> like just the idea that you're moving around and that has some influence on fetal brain development. They, uh, women who meet the physical activity guidelines during pregnancy, their babies tend to have a higher IQ, although there's multiple other factors that obviously go into that. And then there's a reduced incidence of low birth weight, which again, if you're just trying to logically deduce your way through this thing you're like well if you're working out more you're burning more energy and so there's less energy availability to babies so maybe the instance of low birth weight would actually go up and it's like nope turns out body super complicated you end up eating more or diverting more towards the fetus and they tend to be just fine um do you are there other things that you discuss about fetal health like like health to baby from exercise sure. or? yeah i mean just just as it relates to the the fetal kind of baby fat distribution, we were talking about large for gestational age or, or um, growing too large in the womb or low birth weight. Um, in women who do have excessive weight gain in the pregnancy and lower physical activity during the pregnancy, um, you can have the, um, the, the issue where baby's kind of fat distribution is more so, so growing too large, but also in such a way that can potentially increase the risk for things like shoulder dystocia, where um, baby's trying to be born, the head is born, and we've got big bulky linebacker shoulders that get stuck under mom's pubic bone in the pelvis. Um, even in a C-section, um, the way that a baby's fat just uh, is distributed can make for a more difficult delivery. Um, through that uterine incision at the time of C-section. So it's a matter of how your baby's made, how big your baby's made, and potential difficulties with birth, regardless of mode of delivery. Um, and there's also um, some, there's, there's certainly discussions about the familial component of things like obesity and other chronic diseases, diabetes, hypertension, and things like that. Um, with a very strong component being environmental factors. If you are born into the same environment as mom and dad with whatever socioeconomic factors and things like that that may contribute to those conditions, then that's that's probably a big factor in your children and your children's children going down that same kind of health trajectory. Um, but there's also some um, what's called like epigenetics as well. Some uh, people that are much smarter than me that are looking <laughs> at things from like a from, from the, the uh, layer of kind of your baby's DNA 
and some of the information about how they're going to express when they're on the outside and how their metabolism is going to work and, and things along those lines. And um, there, there is evidence that supports that there are some influences that mom's health during the pregnancy, um, including the, the presence of diabetes or the presence of obesity or excessive weight and things like that, can have some of those impacts later on in that baby's life as well. Um, so all of that, I think, is very impactful and important to share um, with my patients um, as lots of, you know, baby-related, baby-specific um, motivation to stay active and to reach for those healthy weight gain goals in the pregnancy. Yeah, big lever to pull. Like, it's not just you. There's, you know, there's somebody else involved in this calculus. Um, the caveat, I should say, for all of this data that we're kind of reviewing here is that the majority, the vast majority of these studies, unless otherwise specifically stated, is only from individuals meeting the aerobic training guidelines, not the combination of resistance training and aerobic training, mostly due to study design. When studies are investigating like what happens with folks who are meeting the current physical activity guidelines versus not in nearly any population, the way that they measure that uh, or define that is just by meeting the aerobic training guidelines, uh, not the combination for the most part. So my estimation would be that these, the results that we see would be even better if they were doing combined resistance training, aerobic training, basically due to increased uh, physical activity. Uh, also the elements of musculoskeletal conditioning that are unique to resistance training that don't occur from aerobic training for most folks. Uh, so, you know, that's the caveat here. Uh, I am hopeful. I'm optimistic that future data sets will in, uh, have more uh, resistance training included, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's where we're at here. Um, with respect to risks. So we covered the good stuff. What about the bad stuff? Um, the American, I know, dun, dun, dun. Uh, ACOG says that concerns that regular physical activity during pregnancy may cause miscarriage, poor fetal growth, musculoskeletal injury, or premature delivery have not been substantiated for women with uncomplicated pregnancy. So there's again, that caveat. It's like, it's like lawyer language. Um, when, you know, when you, again, when you look at all these guidelines, invariably they say, well, mom needs a full checkup prior to being cleared for exercise. And then of course you need to adjust the exercise program to the needs of the pregnancy. Um, there are a couple tools that you can use to evaluate folks, uh, pregnant individuals for, um, medical clearance. So there's a PARMED X. There's also one from the Canadian guideline, uh, Canadian Society of Exercise Professionals. So both of those are free online. So there's a PARMED X for pregnancy, particularly for providers who are unfamiliar with exercise, don't feel comfortable kind of taking this upon themselves. Um, Lorraine, here's, I just want a hot take if you have one. If we're assuming that most individuals in the peripartum around pregnancy period are seeing a health care provider regularly, do they really need to have like a pre-participation screening? Do they need to go see their doctor just to get cleared for exercise? Like, is this helpful? Short answer, no. Ooh, um, slightly, slightly nuanced answer, which you may be interested in, is That's right. that... Um, Obviously, I do recommend having a a baseline of routine prenatal care. So that's that's the assumption that we're making. And if routine prenatal care is happening, and that includes basic ultrasound studies and basic, you know, just kind of familiarization with that individual, if there were any conditions or situations 
that, you know, would raise a red flag, it would come up at that time. But the likelihood of having something that was unexplored or unscreened for, um, and that having some kind of significant impact on that individual's ability to safely engage in exercise is next to none. So for example, if we talk about um, disorders to do with the placenta, right? Um, Sometimes there are blood vessels in the placenta or the placenta itself that can implant um, in an unfavorable location covering the cervix. There's some bleeding concerns and risks and things along those lines. And my bottom line to that is if that is, if that is happening in your pregnancy, you'll know about it. It's not going to be like a secret and it's not something that you need to worry about. Um, I can't do exercise until I find out that I don't have placenta previa. That's that's not right. Um, so there are, there are very rare, um, unique situations that if it comes up, you, they will be discovered in your prenatal care. Um, and if there's any adjustments to the counseling that has to occur for that individual, then it will happen between you and your obstetric provider. But um, to say that I need to sit tight until I can have that appointment, no. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a barrier. Although, again, this assumes that exercise is not being discussed in, you know, the first visit where people establish contact, which I mm-hmm. hopefully would be. But, you know, again, being optimistic, it, it's very similar when, you know, you read the legalese around starting exercise in general. Uh, it's like, oh, you know, speak to a physician to make sure that you're okay to exercise. And it's right. like, if you're living independently and you're, and you're, and you're able to ambulate right. unassisted, yes, it is highly unlikely <laughs> that this screening pre-participation screening is going to do more good than harm right? because the best time to start exercising was yesterday. Exactly. And the second best time is today. Mm-hmm. So it's like. Anyway, that may be overly aggressive, but I just... Sure. But, and especially especially in obstetrics, though, um, I would just circle back to what we talked about in terms of the quality and the extent of data that exists in, yeah, right, you know, yeah. in pregnancy land. And so so you're, you're saying don't do anything until you talk to your obstetric provider who is reading all of the things that we're reading you all today, all of these mm-hmm. guidelines and recommendations, you know, flawed and insufficient as they are um, with kind of some made up parameters. So, yeah, I, it is beneficial though. I think so the previous guidelines used to have these terms, absolute and relative contraindications effectively absolute meaning you should never exercise. If you have these things relative yeah. being like, ah, you should probably ask somebody about yeah. that. Let's talk these about are, it. Let's talk about it. Yeah. yeah. Th- those previously were included in most of the guidelines. So historically for absolute, you know, restrictions, if you had Restrictive lung disease, incompetent cervix, uh, your risk of premature labor, persistent second or third trimester bleeding, no exercise for you, do not pass go, do not collect $200. Uh, relative contraindication. So yeah, let's talk about it. If you had a history of fetal growth restriction or miscarriage or premature birth, yeah. uh, it's like, yeah. So the idea is then if you didn't exercise, you'd be at reduced risk of having these things. Right. And that therein uh, lies the flaw. <laughs> <laughs> Even in the guide, right. yeah. So, so now in the guidelines, they say there are no studies documenting an improvement in outcomes in yeah. women at risk for preterm birth who are placed on activity restriction, including bed rest. Sure. And there are multiple studies documenting untoward effects of routine activity restriction on mom and family, including negative psychosocial uh, effects. So, it's like we have this robust evidence base that 
not being physically active or restricting physical activity is harmful. And we have no data suggesting that physical activity restriction is beneficial, which is why I think ultimately they've removed the absolute and relative contraindication like text from the guidelines. Uh, but some of them still exist. And, you know, there are a number of places where you can get physical activity guidelines during pregnancy from. What, what is your take on this? And, and I guess, again, if someone's bringing this up, like how do you, in, in during a visit, how do you discuss it? Very much in the same way that I discuss the term high risk. Sure. It is a bit of a wastebasket of a term, and I don't hesitate to call it such. Yeah, trash. <laughs> to my, to yeah, love it. Space. Because, um, and not not to squash any, you know, any inquiry or claim about that, but to say your care should be individualized. And there are things that are unique about you. And we're going to talk about that, right? I'm not going to put you in a category and say high risk, not high risk. Um, there are risks being pregnant, period. Um, and then our, my job is to, to establish a, a relationship with that patient and, um, you know, and to give proper recommendations um, as we go along, try to set her up for success. But, um, but when it comes to, um, you know, talking about some of the things that are really just outliers, um, similar to, to the pre-screening. If there's something going on that may really count as a contraindication exercise, you're going to know about it because we will have talked about it. It's not going to be a secret. And that's going to include things like um, having your water break before, you know, w before term, you know, you're usually going to be admitted to the hospital in that situation. Um, that's an extreme. And that is listed in a lot of the guidelines as still, you know, contraindications. <clears throat> Similarly, um, there is an extreme, you know, variety of a blood pressure problem um, known as preeclampsia that um, can kind of be the precursor to having a seizure in pregnancy or eclampsia. And if that's going on, you're going to know about it. And we're, and again, a lot of times you're going to be you know, needing one-to-one -one nursing care, you're admitted to the hospital, you're getting IV infusion therapies of various things. And so anyways. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's the same thing, like in the, in the general population, right? It's like, right. if you are ur urgently or emergently requiring medical care, probably not the best time to go to the gym. Right. Pro probably right. contraindicated. Exactly. Uh, on the other hand, if you are not urgently or emergently needing medical care, at that point, at that point, a lot of the stuff becomes a judgment call based on the risk benefits, and it ha it's probably needs to be tailored individually, individually to the specific thing that's going on and the individual yeah. that's you know asking the question. Well, I, but, I would say one other thing related to that too, and one thing that um, is fairly common, just based on demo, like our demographics in the United States, is the rate of overweight and obesity. So, right. um, uh, and then if that woman has an overweight or obese BMI and has had uh, a prior loss, so a miscarriage or, um, or preterm delivery, um, that's, that's kind of a, a little bit of a balancing act too in that conversation, because, um, what do we know? We know that, um, obese individuals in pregnancy have a higher rate of spontaneous miscarriage mm -hmm. and preterm birth, preterm delivery. Mm -hmm. And that is associated with psychosocial, you know, um, negative impacts as well as just healthcare impacts and, and everything on and from there. Um, but then on the flip side, there, is, there are some recommendations that say, well, we don't know 
and, and maybe should advise that people who've had recurrent miscarriages or have had prior losses probably shouldn't work out. Shouldn't exercise, but, yeah. But you know, that's that's part of my that's part of my strategy for mitigating the other thing is mm-hmm. is having yeah. you know the 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 matter of being overweight or obese and trying to reduce that risk going forward. So, um, but bottom line is I tell my patients that there's not one thing or one, one activity threshold level that you could reach. That's going to, uh, that's going to abort the pregnancy. And right. I just try to get that point across um, because there is a lot of fear that, that is um, that is ingrained in that individual from their prior experiences. And it's really hard to overcome that, but um, it's just a matter of, of um, establishing that relationship, motivating, encouraging, and just working together. Oh, yeah, the easy stuff. Yeah, yeah. getting people to engage in behavioral giving, change. Giving them easy. the time that they need, right, to that, establish right. those relationships. Yeah. There, there are some weird restrictions that, again, are based on evidence uh, that's mostly consensus or professional opinion. For example, the temperature. Don't mm-hmm. exercise in temperatures that are too high or too low or in high humidity. But mom being less able to regulate her body temperature um, is the thought here. Although, again, I'm looking for case reports, you know, like mom was exercising outside in a high humidity environment and something bad happens. Again, this is theoretical risk. And again, I Mm -hmm. I feel like that's reasonable, particularly in developed countries where we can exercise in thermoneutral environments. But, you know, some people may not have access to that. And then the cost benefit. Yeah, There, there are altitude restrictions. So ACOG actually says don't exercise above an uh, altitude of 1,900 meters. Uh, I guess the risk of altitude sickness goes up and babies do not, their developing fetuses don't really have any compensatory mechanisms for what happens at altitude with the lower partial pressure of oxygen and Mm -hmm. greater amount of carbon dioxide retention. Uh, No diving. You can't do any deep sea diving. because the risk of embolism increases. I, I don't laugh to say that a risk of like embolism is funny, but it's like, I just want to know who's pregnant. And like, you know what? I, I scheduled this deep sea diving trip. Yeah. And uh, it's on. I'm gonna send it's it. still on. I'm going I'm to send it. Yeah, full send. <laughs> like, can you get a wetsuit that fits? I don't know. Anyway, uh, they're uh, also the Japanese guidelines recommend uh, exercising between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m because there are fewer uterine contractions during this time period, which I wasn't aware of. And I tried to hunt down like a primary source for this and cannot find it. So is that true? Is that like, <laughs> do you know this to be true? <laughs> so for uterine contractions, I didn't realize that someone had gotten to those weeds to, to try to describe when they occur. I do know that there is uh, the highest um, uh, statistical time for babies wanting to be born is between 1 and 3 a.m. And somehow ah. I, I did know that going into this profession, and I still pr- I said, "Sure, let's go yeah. for it." We need a psyche valve, <laughs> yeah. After this, it's true. But I didn't. Yeah, no, I was not tracking um, uterine contraction. You know, twenty four hour like I don't know when they're happening more than less. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll have to we'll have to do a, a study on this. Uh, probably the more common commonly known restrictions have to do with posture. It's like, oh, you can't do any exercise with a, with the moms in a supine position lying down after the first trimester. Mm. What? How am I supposed to bench press if I can't even lie down? What up with that? <laughs> yeah, why though? <laughs> so yeah, I'll, I approach that from kind of two angles. One is kind of the baby, the baby take, and then the mom take. Um, 
This usually comes up more often in terms of sleeping position and um, talking to patients who are back sleepers and things like that. And then the age old, um, you know, advice of avoiding sleeping on your back when you're pregnant. And, uh, you know, realistically, that's very, very difficult to study. <laughs> it's like, put all these women in a lab and go to sleep, just sleep how you normally would. And then just follow them and see how often they have like a bad outcome. Um, so in the absence of being able to do something like that, um, there, there is data that looks backward in time, looking at populations and, and say, you know, how do people self-report in terms of their um, sleeping positions? And then they, they put that together with their pregnancy outcomes. And specifically, those pregnancy outcomes are saying, did, you, did this pregnancy result in a stillbirth? You know, that's, that's kind of like worst case scenario, what's on people's minds and what they're scared about. And the rate of stillbirth was the same. And I got it, you know, that's, some people are not going to still feel comfortable with that. But um, in the way that we have been able to evaluate this, what we've seen is similar outcomes. And that's, and, and at the end of the day, too, I tell my patients when it comes to sleep is just, uh, I want you to sleep however you're going to get rest because your sleep is going to affect the rest of your day, day after day. And um, so I want you to, to not lay down with anxiety. That's going to worsen your sleep. And then also try to contort yourself into positions where you know you can't fall asleep. So, um, so that's, that's one part of it. Um, and then the, the other aspect is related to uh, the return of blood flow um, to the heart and to the, to the brain. So um, that's what it comes down to is just when you are on your back and when you are in the second, third trimester and that uterus and the baby has grown to the point where it is compressing the vena cava and your abdominal blood vessels, um, you may encounter um, temporary uh, symptoms of lightheadedness. And in extreme cases, even um, passing out or feeling like you're about to pass out. Um, so it is going to be case by case. And some people may be more sensitive to that when they lay on their back compared to others. But I think that it's something that can, you can endeavor to safely test out the waters of being on your back for certain amounts of time and doing, exerting certain amounts of effort while on your back. Um, you know, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't, uh, stop benching for the first 20 weeks and then, just lay back and say, well, let me just see if I still have my one RM, <laughs> you know, just throw it up. <laughs> right. I mean, that just doesn't make sense. Um, so um, that those are the the big, you know, considerations that I address with my patients is just, just real recognize that you, you have something pressing on your major blood vessels. You may feel lightheaded. So you can do an incline. If you do feel that way, you can do an incline bench. Um, but I don't want you to fear laying on your back. Yeah. I think that's the biggest, that's the biggest difference, right? It's like the fear people are like, Oh, if I lay down for even a second, bad badness, it's right. like, mm, probably not. Again, right. I don't know that there are any unique benefits to the bench press that are outside of getting better at the bench press. Yeah. I do know that many people like to bench press. And you know, if that was a significant barrier to exercise participation, like if I can't bench, I'm not doing anything. It's, it's over. like, it's a, yeah, I was like, oh, well, oddly specific, but okay, you know, yeah. that's the thing. Um, yeah, but yeah, incline bench, overhead press. There are other ways to, you know, train the muscles of the shoulder girdle for a period of time if you cannot tolerate uh, being on the bench. But I don't think like the idea that you cannot lie supine 
it's an absolute contraindication. It's like, mm, maybe for some people, you know, but they're going to, again, as you've said over and over and over again, they're going to know this. It's not going to be like a surprise. Um, definitely good feedback there. All right. Uh, now to wrap up this podcast, uh, what I think is probably the most important part of this is actually counseling this is where the rubber meets the road. We have a lot of medical and fitness professionals and otherwise uh, people in the community who are seen as their the expert in physical activity. So like how to get people to engage in this health promoting behavior, which is physical activity. Um, it's interesting to me that around the pregnancy period, so before, during, after, this is probably the most healthcare that a woman is going to receive in her entire life. Right. Uh, just they're seeing the doctor more frequently than ever. And yep. they also, they have this huge motivation to like engage in behavioral change. So this would be the time to do it um, if there ever was one, except for yesterday, which was the other best time. The better time. <laughs> Interestingly though, there's like, people are getting this counseling on engaging in physical activity, exercising, whatever, way less frequently than I thought. Uh, so providers, for example, in one study where they surveyed, uh, OBGYNs and primary care physicians who were counseling, uh, patients, pregnant individuals on exercise and diet, uh, providers reported counseling pregnant women about diet and exercise and at about 17.9% of preventative care visits compared to, uh, 22.6%, uh, for non-pregnant women. So they actually less, they got pregnant women got less counseling, uh, than non-pregnant women. Um, and then individuals with obesity, yeah, individuals (laughs) with obesity or who are overweight, uh, were significantly less likely to receive this advice as well, even though they would potentially benefit more, uh, one could make that argument. Um, in a retrospective, a survey, uh, where they actually called up patients and had them like report like, Hey, were you counseled on exercise during your pregnancy? 58% of women recalled being counseled on exercise. Um, which means that almost over 40% were not. And I'm like, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> and this is, this is a problem. I, I, one is because most people are not meeting the current physical activity guidelines. Like again, we say over and over and over again, most people do not meet the physical activity guidelines. So they're insufficiently active, but also, you know, despite the younger population who are generally more active, they, people stop exercising during pregnancy. So uh, one study I found again, really large uh, uh, retrospective survey said that 73% of the pregnant individuals were exercising prior to pregnancy and nearly 40% stopped during pregnancy. So again, this is just, these are just opportunities for us to improve the health of our community, not only our current generation, but also future generations. So, okay, Lorraine, uh, this is, this is an important question. What percentage of patients are you actually counseling on exercise? 100%. Is that true? Hundred percent. That is that yep. is absolutely true, and um, and I will tell you because if you do something the same way every time, you don't have to think about it, and it is very much a part of my. I hate to call it a scripted approach, but my my new OB physical um, appointment is very very standardized, and I hmm. will always always point out what my patient's pre pregnancy BMI was, their recommended weight gain goals for the pregnancy, sprinkling in discussion about risks and benefits, um, and always give that guidance about exercise to them. We need to, we need to do like an undercover boss thing where somebody like goes and imposes as a patient and they'd be like, see, it wasn't a hundred percent. It was 99.5. That one time. <laughs> that one time. Yeah. It's like you were here for an STI. Okay. No, they can, um, they can try it, but 
<laughs> yeah, it's going to be in there. Yeah. Uh, how do you think that that compares to your colleagues, both in your current clinic? We kind of already addressed this a little bit, sure. but I'm just curious to what your take is, because you've been to various ACOG meetings. You're up with, you know, these these people. Yeah. Um, well, I guess uh, I would I would approach this more um, in in highlighting some of the difficulties that we have just in, in healthcare in general, which is there are so many things that are important. So, so many um, high yield things that we want to convey to our patients uh, and not having enough time to do it. Um, there are lots of pressures um, in terms of um, how clinic schedules are set up, medical documentation, things like that, um, that really acts as a barrier, I think, for providers to, I mean, they just have to, to prioritize what things they're going to spend that time on while still um, closing out their charts and finishing their documentation and making it to the next appointment on time, assuming the patient arrived on time. So, you know, from the perspective of the healthcare provider, these are some challenges going into it. Um, yeah. and, and that do threaten my 100% rating. <laughs> <laughs> right. Sure. Yeah. You know, it's tempting. It's definitely tempting to say, listen, I looked at your labs. They're okay. Or they're not. And I need you to do X, Y, and Z. Here's this and that, whatever. Um, but, you know, you have to actively fight that um, temptation to curtail mm -hmm. some things in that initial visit. Um, but there is so much information. So um, I think that that probably does get left off um, for those reasons um, or because there are folks in the field that are kind of hanging on to um, some of the guidelines back from when the good old Dr. Fagenbaum was born. Sure. <laughs> so yeah, there's some of that. There's some of that in the field too. Um, you mm -hmm. know, folks that are still spouting some recommendations and guidelines that are way outdated or not relevant today, based on what we know. Um, so, yeah, unfortunately, I think that it does kind of get get benched or uh, mis misinformed to our patients. Yeah. I think it'd be nice if like uh, EMR, so electronic medical records just across the board, like had like an exercise counseling box and maybe like a few other like follow-ups, like just to try to prompt people to do it, sure. like in order to like close their chart out. But, you know, yeah. boy, can, boy can dream. Um, okay. So there are many ways to engage in motivational interviewing. I like the five A's just as a default recommendation. So ask, advise, assess, assist, arrange, try to, you mm -hmm. know, wrap all that together. Uh, I think it'd be useful for our listenership. What's like the first thing that you say to folks to get the conversation rolling? Because I think people, you know, particularly individuals who have worked in a healthcare setting or as a fitness uh, professional, they, you know, talk to people all day. Yeah. Just the hardest part of starting the conversation uh, and getting it off on the right foot when it comes to exercise and starting exercise. So how do you personally like start this conversation? Yeah. So, um, like I mentioned, there's so much information. I do try to orient my patient to the visit before we jump into it. I say just warning. <laughs> there's a lot of information about to come at you. We're going to use this visual tool and we're going to write things down and we're going to have different ways of capturing this information. So don't feel overwhelmed. Don't, um, be concerned about missing something because we're, you're going to have a takeaway from this. Um, and I tell them what I'm going to tell them. So mm -hmm. we're going to review labs. We're going to talk about ultrasound. We're going to talk about appointment frequency. And we're going to talk about the things that are unique about you and how um, 
how I want to help you set, you know, set you up for success and a healthy pregnancy and delivery ultimately. And so what follows naturally from that, I'm going to talk about what their lifestyle things are. I talk about their work, um, asking them about tobacco use, alcohol, drug use. Um, and that very easily goes into what their physical activity is like. Um, and from there, I can segue into their individualized you know, recommendations based on their pre-pregnancy BMI. Why is there a um, recommendation on gestational weight gain? What is that for you? And what are some of the incentives to trying to reach those goals? And then from there, not only do we have a goal in mind, but we also recognize that regular exercise um, is important. And, and I want to let them know resoundingly that I do uh, very enthusiastically encourage it and recommend it for them um, and what that can look like, um, including trying to myth bust including trying to incorporate their own preferences into it. Um, if they have some prior physical activity um, going into the pregnancy, what does that look like? If they're interested in trying something out for the first time, encouraging them, and then just giving some of those general guidelines like we talked about, knowing that that subjective feedback is going to come into play um, as the pregnancy progresses recognizing normal physiologic changes in their body and how that can impact what their physical activity experience is like. Um, and, you know, but at the end of this, just a bottom line of saying, I'm your cheerleader, I'm encouraging you and you got this and you're going to do something amazing. You're going to, you're going to grow a whole human. And at the end of it, you have a big task up ahead and that's to deliver this baby one way or another. So, um, you know, just, just really trying to put a lot of wind beneath their wings. Yeah. I love it. Be their hype man. Hype woman. Yeah. yeah that's I love me. it. That's me. Yeah. It was a nice way to wrap this up because it kind of, it goes over the exercise prescription in this area. So yes, physical activity needs to be tailored. No real restrictions. Generally it's going to be tailored to the individual yep. gradual progression of individuals new to exercise, which is the same thing we'd always do. So start low and increase over time to tolerance, use user preferred modalities and exercises to train all the major muscle groups multiple times per week at an intensity that's somewhat uncomfortable and meet the physical activity guidelines or exceed them. You should use RPE. You can use the talk test as well. Maybe watch out for temperature extremes, uh, modify exercise as needed throughout the course of pregnancy based on uh, feedback. And that's again, how we would normally train folks. So people are like, what's the, what are the major differences? I'm like, they're none. Really? They're nice none try, though. <laughs> yeah. You almost got me, but they're none. Yep. Yep. None, none that you can apply generally. So you're just, uh, again, iteratively changing the exercise based on someone's needs, which is the same thing we do all the time exactly. in the postpartum thing. This, this is, it's exactly the same. There are no special guidelines here. Uh, I would say that dad needs to be involved too. There's significant data that there is the physical activity of dad drops off postpartum, uh, substantial decrease. And then there is a emerging evidence that parenthood impacts the children's physical activity behaviors, not only while they're a child, but also into adulthood via role modeling, direct involvement, yep. other sort of uh, things that go on, uh, perhaps some epigenetics involved as well. So like you want the whole family, make yep. it a family affair. Um, and then the goals of, of activity postpartum would be to return to previous activity if they were sufficiently active. And then if they weren't to meet or exceed the current guidelines. And again, that's just healthy behaviors that we want people to engage in. And, um, Lorraine, I thank you, Dr. Baraki, the most handsome Dr. Baraki that we know, uh, for being on the podcast. <laughs> if uh, you want to send people off with a uh, any parting shot, this is like Lorraine's corner. If you if 
we'll give you we'll play some sentimental music uh, you know <laughs> oh goodness or you could just play me out you know <laughs> yeah I'll play you out right bye okay bye no i just um i we can recognize the limitations all we want but uh i too remain hopeful and i think that the more that we have these conversations the the better we're all going to be because of it so if we just engage Ooh. and encourage each other um look for the data where it exists um and support each other that we can all be better for it Wow. I do love that. Uh, so thanks to you, Dr. Baraki, for being here on podcast number 167. This is the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. All of the evidence, papers, resources, etc., are in the description below. So you can check those out at your own leisure. Also head over to the Barbell Medicine website for our latest drops on apparel. If you want to support Marble Medicine, so we can do more of these podcasts to bring you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. Join us here weekly for the Marble Medicine Podcast. Mm-hmm.